Mainly, Strange was a collector of singles. He would buy damn near any 45 unheard if it carried one of his labels because he had come to recognize that these labels had a certain sound. He'd been told by the counter clerk at the Soul Shack that it was session men from Booker T and the MGs who were doing most of the playing on the hottest songs, but he already knew without having to be told that Atlantic, Atco, Dial, Stax, and Volt shared musicians. You could hear the same rhythm and horn sections on cuts from Wilson Pickett, Otis, Rufus and Carla Thomas, Sam and Dave, Aretha, William Bell, Joe Tex, Johnny Taylor, and others. You could hear this same kind of rough old sound on releases from smaller labels like Goldwax and Backbeat. Most of these recordings, he noticed, came out of Memphis or Muscle Shoals. James Brown was an exception. He recorded on King and Smash and had a sound that was all his own, but JB, a man who seemed to have dropped down from another planet, was an exception to everything. But there was something about these southern singers and the cats who were backing them up that separated them from their counterparts coming out of Detroit. Some said that the Motown machine had purposely tried to take the sexuality and rawness out of their tracks so they could sell records to the masses in general and to white teenagers in particular. Some went even further and more to the point, saying that Motown got you thinking on kissing while Stax Volt made you want to screw. But that wasn't exactly fair or right. True, the Southerners' vocals were wet with sex, but in them you could also hear the joy and hurt that came along with love. This combination of blues, country, gospel, R&B, and hard history could only have risen up from the area south of the Mason-Dixon line. George Pelikanov is the author of Right as Rain, Hell to Pay, and Soul Circus. He's written for HBO's The Wire. His latest novel is Hard Revolution. Welcome to Fine Print, George. Thanks for having me. George, your novels seem to work not about solving crimes, but more be about resolving them. Could you talk about the difference and how that plays into your fiction? I'm not really interested in, in who done it. In fact, you, you know that from page one. I'm really more interested in why they're doing it. In other words, I try to get into the, the societal reasons for crime and criminals. You know, what interests me is, is why a kid goes down to the corners to sell drugs and why some of those kids are just doing business on a, on a very kind of peaceful basis and others get sociopathic behind it. And so it's really about that. It's about what's going on in, in society right now that's making these things happen. It struck me that your novels are novels not so much of crime but of economics and the result of the economic situations encountered by the characters. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that, that all of this is going down. And one of the reasons is just a simple accident of birth. It intrigues me that, that two people can be born in different places and their lives can turn out so differently because of just just an accident. And it's not a surprise that the way their lives go. I mean, you've got children who see images all the time on television, for example, of people who have things, and it's all about getting things. It's about getting that Benz. It's about getting the jewelry and the best-looking women and all that. And they're not being advanced properly through school. They're not being educated properly. They don't have, in many cases, they don't have any kind of example at home. A lot of these kids don't have fathers around. A tremendous amount of them don't have fathers around. And so they go down to the corners to find their family. You know, it's not about selling drugs. I mean, drugs is just a MacGuffin. They're looking for a place to belong and to get these things that they see that they supposedly need, that they see every day in these images. And the result of the drug war on the economy trying to be created by these people, it doesn't help them, does it? 
You know, the drug war itself is, it's just a phony political thing. And in fact, there's people who don't want to see this problem go away because there's a lot of money in that drug war. It's all comes back to economics then, doesn't yes. it? Let's talk a little bit, let's back up a little bit and talk about your writing. When did you start writing and why? Well, I started writing when I was 31 years old. I had wanted to be a filmmaker for most of my uh, youth. And in fact, I went to the University of Maryland and I got a degree in film. But by chance, I took a course there in heart, crime fiction from a guy named Charles Misch. And I took it as, as an elective to try and it looked like an easy class, honestly. I wasn't much of a reader. And Mr. Misch turned me on to books, specifically crime fiction. And the reason I wasn't much of a reader is because I had yet to find a kind of literature that spoke to my world, which was I came out of a working class background. And most American fiction is about people who win. It's about success. And Mr. Miss showed me that this was a valid form of, of literature that was not about people who won all the time. It was about people, in fact, who very often stumbled and achieves uh, small moments of uh, sometimes inglorious redemption, but redemption just the same, and then went on with their lives just as if they, uh, as if nothing had happened, you know. And it inspired me, but I didn't know what to do because I w I wasn't a writer. I'd never taken a writing class, and so I just lived my life for the next ten years after college, still working the kinds of jobs I had always worked, working in warehouses and bars and kitchens and so on. But in that period, I was reading a lot of books. I was focused on. I wanted to write a book. I decided I'm going to do this. And so I read books, you know, I read probably two or three books a week for 10 years. And I finally sat down and wrote one when I was 31. Now, how did you find publication of that book? Well, I didn't, again, I didn't know anything. I was very naive. So I did try and get an agent, couldn't get an agent. And I got a copy of the Writer's Market and book and I sent one manuscript off to one publisher because in that book it says no simultaneous submissions. In other words, don't send a bunch of manuscripts out. You can only send them out one at a time, which isn't true, by the way, because the reason they say that is they don't want the publishers to get into a bidding war. And publishers say that, no simultaneous submissions. It also says in that book, don't bother the person that you're sending it to. Don't call them up and say, what do you think of my book? So I didn't do that either. I didn't hear anything from a year. I sent it to one publisher, St. Martin's Press, it landed on the desk of a young guy named Gordon Van Gelder, very fortunate guy who was roughly of my generation, who understood what I was doing, which was really, it was like a punk rock detective novel. And Gordon bought the manuscript off the slush pile, and I was on my way. As a punk rock detective novel, could you tell us a little bit about your character that you created in that novel? The guy Nick Stefanis was... Uh, pretty much my alter ego and, and remains so. But in the beginning, he was closer to me than he would ever be again. He was just a guy who was had a job that he didn't like. He was into music. He was into partying a little bit and just basically kind of stumbling around and having fun. And then he leaves that job to, to go in search of a lost kid. And in effect, he burns down his whole life to do so, which is what I did. Uh, when I wrote my first book, I mean, I just totally started all over again. And Stephanus in subsequent books goes in a different direction than my life did. He actually, he actually goes to the bottom. But I found something that I was passionate about finally for the first time in my life, and my life got better actually. Here's something I've been wanting to ask you about because the Stephanos books 
are very grungy and dark and, mm -hmm. and fairly depressing. But as you go through your various novels, your latest series, the Quinn Strange novels, have a lot more or some more positive aspects. Mm -hmm. The man has acquires a family. I'm wondering how much of this reflects your maturation as a writer and how much reflects your maturing as a human? Well, I think you hit it right on the head. The, those early books are books of a young man who was kind of trying, trying to look around and, and, and find himself. And it's easier to be, to go into that darkness when you're younger, I think. One of the ironies about getting older is, is that you see, you learn more and you know more and there's, there seems to be more light. And I also got very interested in kids and the plight of kids along the line, and it became sort of an obsession of mine and a um, and a mission to write about in my books. And that's why the Strange and Quinn books kind of focus on that, what happens to kids in the inner city. And and they also celebrate, instead of just saying that everything's bad and, and nothing's going to work, they sort of celebrate these people like Strange and Quinn who go out there and actually do something. They are in the cities. They're coaches, clergy, church groups, synagogues, all sorts of people in the community take this on for no kind of reward other than just to help kids out. And I try to, I try to bring that to light and celebrate it as well, yeah. It's quite well done in the, the Quinn Strange novels. That would include Right as Rain, Hell to Pay, Soul Circus, and even your newest novel, Hard Revolution, to a certain extent. It's interesting that you do divide time between the losers and the drug abusers and the gangbangers and those kids who are being rescued by Derek Strange and mm -hmm. Quinn. And that's equal time in the novel as well. Could you talk about that, achieving that balance? I'm trying to create a, a fully fleshed out world. And you cannot do that just by being in the head of, the, of your protagonists or your heroes. You've got to go into the heads of the bad guys, too. And, again, I have a positive look at these people in the sense that I feel like we all started out the same way. I don't, I don't believe in absolute evil. And, and even my guys uh, that you, you might hate in the beginning of the book, towards the end of the book it kind of turns a little bit because once you get into their thought processes and you look back on their lives— you can see how it happened. You know, I believe that everybody was held by somebody when they were a baby at one time, and we all started out equally, and then something happens. So I'm just trying to present this full world, and, and maybe, hopefully, when you're driving down the street in those areas, you might look at people in a different way. One of the interesting things that I find about your novels is the language that you use. Your bad guys, your gangbangers, your drug abusers, you get into their language enough to give the feel, but not so much as to separate the reader. How do you strike that balance in making it readable, yet to give the flavor of the character? I, I try to give everybody an individual voice. And instead of the mistake that I see in, in much writing and, and um, all, you know television and movies and so on, is you can tell when the writer just looks at somebody and says, well, this is a black guy, he's going to talk this way, or this is a drug dealer, he's got to talk this way. And I try to figure out who these people are, where they came from, their familial history, and then, then I start hearing their voices, and their voices are unique. You know, when you get a, an ethnic group into, into a room, 
and you and you and if it's 50 people and they're all the same color or same ethnicity and you listen to them talk yes there are similarities but if you close your eyes and listen and really close your eyes and listen they've all got different voices and i try to remember that and and just respect people and respect the people i'm writing about could you talk a little bit about your prose the words you write on the page it's very sparse and stripped down mm-hmm. is that deliberate is that the way it comes out do you go back and bring it and ratchet it back? Yeah, I do. In, in rewriting, I, I try to make it even leaner. That's the, that's the goal. It's, I want it to be almost repertorial, and I try to keep my, my voice out of it. I try to keep my politics out of it. Uh, if, it's, if it becomes florid at all, I cut back on it. I tend to write, I get adrenalized during certain kinds of scenes, like action scenes and so on, and I could write a page without any commas or periods even but I go back and fix that and what you're what you're trying to get to is and what I what I first got from the pulp novels of the 50s and so on is this kind of rhythm that's almost that's almost musical and, and when you get to this rhythm in the prose it creates a, a mood almost as if you're listening to music while you're reading the book well music plays an important part in your books doesn't it yeah absolutely yeah could you tell us a little bit about how music functions as a background. Do you listen to music when you write, for example? I listen to instrumental music. I listen to jazz, electric jazz. I listen to a lot of movie soundtracks, Ennio Morricone, Lala Schifrin, people like that. And I can't listen to vocals while I'm writing because the, the vocals collide with the words that are going through my head, the dialogue. But I think if music is used correctly, it can really it can define character, first of all. What people listen to can define their characters. And it can, also, it can also really add richness to a scene. There's a scene in Hard Revolution where Strange goes to a house party near Howard University, and he runs into his, his old girlfriend, a woman he's been in love with since she was a little girl. And you can sort of feel it building by the songs that are playing in the party, but then when Otis Redding comes on the box, they actually come together. If you know Otis Redding, you can imagine that this beautiful music, this beautiful positive music about love could really bring two people together, and I think it works in that scene. Now, your new novel includes a CD, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I produced a CD. I chose the music. I sequenced it. It was a lot of fun for me. It's something I've been wanting to do a long time, and it's for folks who come out to my signings that I'm doing well on my tour. It's free with the, when you purchase a book. So, And I think it's a good CD in its own right. The CD focuses on the music of the 60s and the 70s, early 70s. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the hip-hop and more modern music that permeates the background of Right as Rain, Hell to Pay, and Soul Circus? I listen to a lot of, you know, when I'm listening to the radio in my car, it's always on a hip-hop station because I just don't feel like the modern rock stations are doing it for me anymore. They are what, they're really, you know, they call them progressive, but they're really what Top 40 was in the 70s. It's just not very interesting. I think the most honest music is coming out is, is hip-hop because, it's it, again, it's repertorial. It's what's going on out there. A lot of people don't like it. Some of the folks on radio that will be unmentioned, you know, try to put it down and say that it's, it's morally objectionable and all that. But, you know, they wouldn't be singing about it if it wasn't going on. And in addition to that, I have sons who are, in, you know, getting into their teens, and it's playing in my house all the time. So it's not like I have to do much, much research. It's in the environment. Tell us a little bit about your new book, which takes place in 1968 in Washington, D.C., and culminates in the Martin Luther King riots. And tell us a little bit about how you researched that book. 
Hard Revolution is a book that I've been wanting to write for years, and it goes back to when I was a child, and, and I actually saw King speak. I heard him speak at the National Cathedral four days before his assassination. And then working at my dad's place after the riots was something that I've never forgotten because everything had changed, and, and, and just being on, the, on one side of the counter with my dad, and we're, we're both Greek, and then his employees were all black, and listen, and on the other side of the counter was mainly white professionals because it was 1968. And it's not a surprise that I've been trying to figure out this race and class divide my whole, my whole career. It all comes out of that summer and those riots. So it's something I really wanted to do, but I, I was waiting because I didn't think I was ready to do it. And the thing that got me ready were the Strange and Quinn books, the contemporary ones, because as I wrote those books, I began to see Strange as the vehicle where I would take him back as a young man and explore this whole thing. So the book is Strange's life between the years of 12 and 22 years old, 1959 to 1968, and it ends with him as a rookie cop policing the streets and policing his own people during the riots of 68. You've traveled in time, so to speak, in your novels before, haven't you? Yeah, I jump around in time quite a bit, yeah. But your, all your novels seem to, you they include the same characters, you have this kind of backdrop, and Nick Stefano shows up in uh, Soul Circus, mm-hmm. uh, Dimitri Karras shows up in the Stefano's books. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about creating this kind of backdrop, this world, the George Pelicanos world? It, it sort of happened as I went along. I, I started to see it as, because... Writers, I'm not alone here, but any novelist will tell you that it's a, it's a 24-hour job. Even when you're not writing, you've got the you've got these characters and these situations going through your head, so you're always thinking about it. And I started to think that, well, this is this is a real world. It's 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 not the real world, but it's another. It is a real world that parallels the one that's going on in Washington. And if that's true, if these characters are still in that world even when they're not the protagonists of the new book, they would be walking through that world. So characters from leading characters from other books started popping up as either walk-ons or minor characters in subsequent books. And I began to see this as, as, as one big world. And then, and then I started reading stuff about that was written about me calling me the Zola of Washington, D.C. And, of course, I had never read any Zola. I didn't know what that meant. But I think he did that for Paris. You know, he, he was this huge world populated by all these characters he had created that kept reoccurring in the books. And all it does for me is it broadens the possibilities. You know, there's so much to write about anyway, but now I've got all these people that are still alive and they're never buried. You know, they're, they always have the possibility of showing up. One thing that really interests me is your picture of Washington, D.C., because it's just not like any other picture of Washington, D.C. that you're going to see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that? It's just, it's the side of the city that's never been actually come out in novels before, or really in any of the popular arts. When people think of Washington, they think of the federal city. If it's a, if it's a thriller, it's about some general with his finger on the red button, or it's the West Wing, you know, it's, and it has nothing to do with the city I grew up in. You still hear to this day, people say, oh, Washington's a transient city, but it's not at all. There's a very small percentage of the population who come and go every four years, hopefully, or sometimes eight years. And the rest of the city has been there for generations. They came up from the south. 
They've stayed there. They've made their lives there. And my intent is to write about those people, those people that, you know, Ellison called the invisible man. Community is really important in your books, isn't it? And I'm wondering how much it stems from your own residing in Washington, D.C. all your life. Is that? Yes. I live live in the neighborhood I grew up in. Wow. Yep. Could you talk about the part that community plays in your books and in your life? Well, we've made a life there, my family and I, and, and I've never wanted to go anywhere else. There's just too much happening there that, that feeds what I do. And Washington is, is a place where, just take the, take the racial issue, for example, and the class issue. It's a place where you can get into a discussion every day with the people who live there if you want to. I'm talking about a passionate, heated discussion. If that's what you want to do, just over the fence, it's always in your face. And I've been around places that in the country where they claim they don't have those kinds of problems, but they're just not spoken about. In D.C., you know, nobody's afraid to speak about it. And I, I think it's great. And for a writer, it's just fodder for the books. Could you talk about the new plague of marijuana that you talk about in your books, the hydro, which seems to fuel the Quinn Strange trilogy and methamphetamine for that matter? Yeah, marijuana was starting to get pretty prevalent. There was a time, believe it or not, in the not-so-recent past where you could have up to 10 pounds of marijuana in your possession, and it was a misdemeanor. So, and I think it's now one pound, which is still a lot of pot, mm-hmm. you know. And by the way, you know, I don't, I'm one of those people that doesn't think that there's anything wrong with, uh, I mean, marijuana should just be legalized anyway. That's just another political scam, right? And, and it's an act of cowardice on the people who won't do it. But anyway, what it means to the drug business is that people finally got hip to the fact that, well, what am I dealing heroin or cocaine for if I can have all this pot and just get it, be out on the street the next day if I get busted, right? Wow. Now, that I never occurred to me. And so marijuana got real big in D.C. again. And the problem was is because, because it's illegal, you kill somebody just as dead over a marijuana beef as you do a heroin or a cocaine beef again. It's not the drug; it's the it's the illegality of it that's cause that causes the violence. So it was just a phenomenon. And then hydroponic grown pot, of course, is much more effective on the head. Let's say it's better pot; it's purer and 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 you need less to get high and and so on. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of research you do to write your gritty street-oriented scenes? It's all over the place. I do a lot of, uh, for a book like Hard Revolution, I did a lot of newspaper. I went back in the, morgue, the morgues of the libraries and I got into the newspapers. And what you do there is you're not just trying to find out the news of the day or the news or read the news stories. More important than that is you go to the advertising, you go to the movie listings and, and what bands were coming through town at the time. And, and what happens is you, you begin to see what people were wearing what kind of cigarettes they were smoking, what they were paying for them, what liquor they were drinking, and so on. And you start to build a world. Now, that's just the beginning. Then you go out and you find people who will talk to you and be recorded. With a book like this, I I went to people who had participated in the riots, teenagers at the time who are now mostly respectable middle-aged people with families and grandchildren and so on. And I talked to black cops and white cops because there was a different perspective there. And also greasers from the late 50s, early 60s. I just, just ran the gamut. I did a lot of research, and, and I got a hell of a lot of material. For the contemporary novels, I'll actually go into the places I'm writing about. I don't go in there with a tape recorder or a notebook. I just go in and I kind of listen to people. And, and you know, it's going to be just sitting at the bar quietly and having a beer. 
or it can be the hard stuff, which is riding with cops. I've done undercover drug busts, that kind of stuff. I've ridden with private detectives, parole officers. I've had people call me who've been in the life, drug dealers who've said, listen, I, you know, I used to be there. I'd like to talk to you about it. I'm straight now, but, you know, I just want to get it out. And I've done that too. So there's all sorts of things. But what you really got to do is if you want to get into these kind of books, if you want to write these kind of books, I feel that you got to go out and, and, and you know, feel the dirt in your fingers and, and breathe the air because if you don't, it's going to show up in the work. Could you talk a little bit about your dialogue? Does Thank this you. come from your tapes? No, this just comes from... See, I lived a full life before I became a writer. I was, again, I was 31 years old when I started. But before that, I had worked in a lot of places where I was thrown in because of, because of the class that I came up in and, and working in my dad's place. And then from there, sales floors, warehouses, bars, kitchens, it just goes down the line. I was thrown in with all sorts of different people from different backgrounds, different classes, different races. And I just listened to them. And I wasn't because I was going to write a book someday. It was, you know, I didn't have those jobs because I was an archaeologist. I had those jobs because I was trying to pay the bills. And I was very fortunate to have lived this full life and to experience all these things before I sat down to write a book, which I feel, uh, I strongly feel is the problem with a lot of American fiction is that people who write in the books, can they technically can write. They don't have anything to write about. Let's talk about American fiction. Let's talk about crime fiction first. Your books aren't whodunits. You already know whodunits. You see it yeah. done. It's more like a what's going to happen as a result of it being done. Yes. Do you see yourself in the mystery genre? You're certainly marketed there. I'm a crime writer, okay. proudly. I'm not a mystery writer. And I wouldn't be ashamed of it if I was, but that's just not what I do. Could you talk about the relationship of what you write to literature and... Tell us a little bit what you think about what's contemporary literature and fiction. I, I think succinctly, let me just say this. There's only good books or bad books. That's the way I look at it. And neither Harold Bloom nor Stephen King can really decide that. They can go back and forth all they want, but ultimately the people are going to decide it 50 years from now. Will they be reading Harold Bloom or will they be reading Stephen King? Now, I don't know and neither do they. Only time's going to tell that story, right? And the only thing you can do as a writer is try and write the best best book you can. So I don't. I try to stay out out of that discussion because it's all conjecture anyway, right? You know that's the goal. I mean, most of the serious writers I know, if you ask them what they're trying to do, it's they're trying to leave something behind, prove that you existed, you prove that you were here, and that's what the books hopefully are going to be. Tell us a little bit about men and women in your books. I've had noticed that the men do not trend towards monogamy. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they d generally don't trend towards monogamy in life, so it's not a real natural thing to do. And if you study it, and you're talking to somebody who's, who's been with the same woman for 25 years and, and, is, and wants in all my power to be, you know, to be the man that I should be. So, but I just find it interesting that, that men have such tr trouble committing. And I try and write about masculinity in an honest way. And sometimes when you're, when you're writing these multiple viewpoint books, it can be brutally honest because I go right into people's heads. You know, you can, ha you can have a scene where people are having a conversation and then you can italicize the man's thoughts, which are totally different from what he's telling the woman. 
you know, some people, it's not, I'll tell you one thing, it's not for everybody because most people want to read uh, books about how they believe the world should be, not the way the world is. And I give it to them the way it is. There's different ways of being a man in your book. Mm-hmm. Books. Could you talk about the different ways of being a man? For example, across the spectrum, you have Derek Strange, Terry Quinn. How does being a man play into the creation of those characters, and how do you run the permutations in your mind? There's a. I'm thinking of a scene in Hard Revolution in, in the 1959 section of the book. It's a day when when Strange is 12 year old and he's walking around with his friend Jimmy George Lakers and they they go to a, a field that's um, Fort Stevens. It's actually a national park, but people people play ball there, and they they run into a couple uh, Italian kids, Angelo Martini and and his brother Dominic, and Dominic tries to get Strange to fight his brother Angelo, and Angelo's kind of weak, and Strange knows that. He can kick this kid's butt, you know. He knows it, and he doesn't take the bait because he thinks, what's in it for me, you know. Everybody here knows I can take this guy, and if I do it, really I'm a coward, you know, because a bully's nothing but a coward deep down, right. The older brother who was just trying to make Angelo tough knows it too, and he knows what Strange did for his brother there, that he didn't do the cowardly thing. And... 300 pages later in the book, you know, he, he repays him 10 years later. And it's just an example of knowing what you are and having no insecurity about that. And it sometimes manifests itself in inaction. And that's what being a man is. It's knowing when to step back and, and just let things cool out because you don't have to step in. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the arc of writing a novel across three novels. And that would be the Strange Quinn trilogy, Right mm-hmm. as Rain, Hell to Pay, and Soul Circus. Could, in some other publishing world, be published as a single novel? When you started Right as Rain, did you know that Soul Circus was out there somewhere? And did you know how Soul Circus was going to conclude? And did, were you preparing for an arc like that? No, I was not. I, I was just, as I always do, I was just trying to write one book when I wrote Write His Rain. But I liked the character Strange particularly, and I didn't want to let him go. And I started to see that I could round I could round out his life and tell his story as a man over the course of a few books. The ending of Soul Circus, which we won't, we won't reveal, but it's been much discussed, comes about because of Quinn's inability to change. And that Again, I didn't know until I was halfway into the book that that's, that was going to be his road. Could you talk maybe about how you develop the characters from book to book to, to add layers and add more to it? And did you know all of Derek's past? Did you know essentially what, was ha- what had happened in Hard Revolution when you wrote Right as Rain? Absolutely not. What I was doing in those books was I, I was planning clues for the book that I had yet to write, but not just for the reader. I was planning clues for myself to try and figure out what I was going to do when I finally got to that point where I had to write that book. And, you know, you could say that I got lucky because it all fell into place. You could also make a mistake doing that because once you've committed it to print, you can't undo it. And so the introduction of the character of Granville Oliver in the second book, Hell to Pay, was very helpful because I knew that that would somehow, at that point, connect to 
the 60s book, which takes place 35 years earlier, and that that would be the way that I would bring it back around and and actually give a complete picture of Derek Strange's life. For a guy who writes books where there's just tough, 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 the what stands out in your books is the tenderness. Yeah, I think so. Uh, let me give you an example that, that's not of my books is a picture that was very influential on me in my career was The Wild Bunch. And Everybody talks about the violence in the Wild Bunch, as they should. It was it was startling, but what I remember most now, and what I what I love most when I rewatch that film, is the the scenes in uh, Angel's Village. Those kind of beautiful scenes where they go over to Mexico, and and you could see the the beauty of his life, and that was that was a counterpoint to all the violence in his life, and the scenes that I remember from this book, Hard Revolution, are are the ones like. The house party where Strange runs into his girlfriend and the scenes with his mother and when they're in the kitchen and she's got the birds outside the window and she's taped the cardboard to the window to make sure that nobody disturbs the birds in the nest. And I think that's what stays with you is this, this, these human, human scenes. I want to get to a different part of your career. Your career as an independent filmmaker and mm -hmm. producer. A lot of people are going to be shocked as I was when I found out that you played an instrumental part in bringing John Woo's movies to America. Could yep. you tell a little bit about that? I, I actually got uh, into the movie business because I had read in the paper in Washington, D.C. that two gentlemen, Jim and Ted Pettis, who had produced three of the early Coen Brothers movies, had just bought John Woo's film The Killer for U.S. distribution. And I went to them and I said, I had seen it at a Hong Kong film festival, and I said, look, I want to come work for you guys. I want to promote that film. So they gave me full reign, and actually I was the only guy working there at the time. And so I not only did I book the film into the theaters and move the prints around and so on, but I, I made the movie poster. I did that famous tagline uh, that goes with it, and we introduced John to, to the United States, and, and you know his films had not gotten a distribution up to that point. And while that was going on, I was starting to get calls from Hollywood agents, you know, we want to see a print, this and that. They were already trying to grab him and put him into the uh, into the industry, which they eventually did. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, you also are working in Hollywood with HBO with David Simon. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with da David Simon. Did you Had you read Homicide, his yes. uh, nonfiction work? And I'd read The Corner also, which I felt that should have won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, that's that's just a— It's a powerful book. Very powerful and, and, and a huge achievement. He came to me— uh, when he was developing The Wire and he asked me to write one episode. And the way he pitched it to me was that it was going to be a novel for television and that it, each episode would be like a chapter in a book and that it didn't have to always be on point in terms of plot points and propulsion and that sort of thing. It could be heavy on character and you could do asides and this and that. And it was real attractive to me because I had written for the movies before and, and most of my experiences had been had been less than good. So I wrote one episode, and I enjoyed it. I thought this, I thought the series was great. And last year he asked me to come on as a full-time story editor and write a couple episodes myself, which I did. And we're now preparing to shoot the third season, and I'll be producing this year and writing a couple episodes. We've also brought in novelist Richard Price and Dennis Lehane to write for us a couple episodes for us. Wow, that's kind of an all-star lineup. Yeah, I'm, I'm real psyched because this goes back to when I was a kid. I used to watch Twilight Zone, as you did, I'm sure. Yes. And 
And I always used to watch, look at those guys' names who were writing those shows, and they were novelists. George Rick, Clayton, Johnson, right, Richard Charles, Matheson. Sure. And I always wonder why they didn't do that in television anymore and, and why they don't do it in the movies, too. Why don't they hire real writers? So we're doing it. And, and I, think it's, I think it's unprecedented because you're talking about some pretty heavy hitters now on the show. Those are some heavy hitters. We'll look forward to that. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going to happen with the adaptations of your work? Lots of writers have approached Hollywood with the traditional go to Las Vegas and toss it over, grab the money, come back, mm-hmm. forget about it. Is that what you're doing? or I've done it, and <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, it was. I did get paid, but it wasn't very satisfying. So I was a little more careful this time. Right as Rain was uh, optioned by Curtis Hansen, the director of L.A. Confidential, and Eight Mile, Wonder Boys, great director. It's being written by David Benioff, who wrote the novel and the film The 25th Hour, and also Troy, which is a.k.a. The Iliad. It's coming out next month. And he's a fantastic young writer, and it's going to be done for Warner Brothers. So pretty stoked. I mean, these are all good people. Hanson's a world-class director. Some of us are somewhat concerned about what novel's coming out next, when it's coming out, and who's, who's going to be in it. Uh, the next book has been written. It's a standalone. It's about a guy who comes out of prison and gets a job as a dog policeman uh, in Washington, D.C. And it's his relationship to his parole officer on one hand, and on the other hand, uh, he's got some people in the neighborhood who are trying to draw him back into the into the drug trade. And the book's called Drama City. And will it involve any of our favorite characters? Will they walk through? You'll see a walkthrough from Derek Strange, yeah. Oh, good. Now, are we going to return to the world of Derek Strange? I think so. It's a it's a hard character for me to give up because I think he's he's the best one I've ever written. He feels like a real man to me and a real human being, and I just don't want to give that up because once you have it, you know, it doesn't always happen, and it's hard, to, it's hard to let go of people like that. So and there's more to write about Derek Strange. So, Could you talk a little bit about how characters take on a life of their own? Well, it often happens in a book that you're writing a minor, minor character, and they become so interesting that they kind of boil up under the mix and become a major character in the book, and you didn't mean for it to happen. And it's one of the reasons why It's maddening to some people, like my editors, but my books have so many characters in them. You might have 10 different people you're trying to follow, but it's only because they're interesting to me, and I think that they're going to be interesting to the reader. We've been speaking with George Pelicanos. His new novel is Hard Revolution. Thanks, George. Thanks a lot.